Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Matthew Gavidia, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Amid uncertainty and diminished healthcare costs and utilization trends precipitated by the COVID-19 pandemic, payer organizations have been tasked with managing the health-related outcomes of member populations nationwide. With growing challenges of member engagement, risk adjustment, and value-based care, technology and the availability of clinical data may be of utmost importance for payers to form a comprehensive view of member health and address potentially unmet needs among members. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Cheryl Mason, Director of Content and Informatics for the Health Language Solutions Team of Walters Kluwer, who discusses how delays in routine care and other aspects of the pandemic are affecting payer organizations today and how technology innovations like natural language processing can work to empower key initiatives in population health and beyond. Welcome to Managed Carecast, Cheryl. Can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? You bet, and thanks, Matt, for the invitation. Um, it's really, really good to be with you here today to discuss the role of clinical data in today's healthcare environment. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, I am Cheryl Mason. I'm the Director of Terminology Management and Informatics at Walters Clore health language, thus my interest in data. Uh, Walters Clore, at its core, is a healthcare technology company with thousands of clinicians and experts in medical education and practice who develop and deploy evidence-based technologies to ensure the best care is available everywhere. At Walters Clore and at Health Language, we do believe that accurate data is, is really a critical component to achieving that goal. We engage with researchers, educators, providers, clinical staff, payers, and patients to develop a common language, both for capturing information at the point of care and usability of that data past the point of care. And in fact, at Health Language, we have developed over a million synonyms, acronyms, and abbreviations that are built on common terminologies that make up that common language used in healthcare today. This work is ongoing. It's what we do every day um, to keep our clients current and up to date on over 180 different code sets, terminologies, maps, value sets, so many different areas of terminology that we keep up to date for our clients, for ourselves. Um, I get just a little bit, let me define common language a little bit here. Um, it's, it's really managed through all these code sets and terminologies. Um, and the reason we do that is because capturing data in a standard format is great. And it's a great way to share things, but it doesn't provide meaning to the data. That's what the code sets and terminologies are for, um, so that that data can be shared and understood across the healthcare ecosystem. So important to both providers, payers, vendors, anybody working in the healthcare space. So that's what I do, um, and I, I hope you can hear that it's it's something that I care deeply about. Outside of work, I care deeply about being in the Colorado outdoors. I'm a Colorado girl at heart, um, raised in a very small family with one sister, and grew up camping, hiking, and biking in the foothills and mountains of Colorado. Still doing that today and starting to train to, to climb a 14,000-foot mountain with my daughter as she pursues her goal of climbing all 58 of those Colorado 14ers. So wish me luck on that, Matt. Fantastic. Good luck on that goal, Cheryl. And delving into our main topic of today, the uncertainty of the COVID-19 pandemic continues to loom large over hospital systems nationwide. 
with payer organizations having to manage the significant fallout of declining trends in healthcare costs and utilization, can you speak on novel challenges that payers have faced in regards to this delayed or foregone care and any issues that were further exacerbated by the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, it's a great question and it, it's quite loaded. So I'm going to try to focus my answer on two things. Um, and those two things that I think are most important to the payers um, in the healthcare ecosystem. One is the amplification of health disparities in their member populations. And the second is the loss of important data that they need for their actuarial calculations going into future years. Um, there are obviously many other impacts, but those two I think are most important. So when we look back over 2020 and even 2021, it's really no secret um, that there was significant disruption in healthcare. And one of the most significant continues to be delays in care. Um, according to a study from June of 2020, over 40% of US respondents chose to delay care for both acute and chronic conditions. The acute piece of that surprised me quite a bit, um, but people were afraid to, to interact with the healthcare system and, and many still are. Those people most likely to de delay that care are often the most vulnerable, um, including those with two or more chronic conditions, those with disabilities and black and Hispanic adults. As you probably know, these groups are, are really known to have that high risk of poor outcomes, not only from COVID-19, but other disease states. Um, and payers really need to pay attention to those groups of people. They need data to be able to do that. Um, I just wanna bring up kind of a, a personal example of that where my mother lives in a community where many people rely on public transportation to perform daily tasks such as grocery shopping. They could require assistance um, through medical transportation services or rely on nonprofit agencies to access the healthcare system. These modes of transportation were disrupted during most of 2020, making it difficult to get the routine and emergent care they may have needed. Payers have establish some policies for helping to pay for these services, but if they're not available to their members, again, those members can't really access the care. So those are examples of the amplification of health inequities that have really been a part, a long, long been a part of healthcare delivery, uh, but they've really made their way, their way to the forefront of the conversation today. Payers are paying close attention to social determinants of health as they plan and prepare for 2022 and beyond, and really want to use that data to drive patient engagement and decision making. You asked about novel challenges. We all know about the disruption. Um, but again, as members are re-engaging with the healthcare system, payers are also needing to re-engage with their members. That means understanding not only their members' healthcare status, but their social determinants of health, things like transportation needs, access to healthy food and living conditions, and feelings of well-being. It's essential for payers to understand the entirety of their members' healthcare experience in order to close gaps in care. Um, so one of the ways that payers do that is through value-based um, and other risk-sharing arrangements. If you think about Medicare Advantage, um, that is really how Medicare Advantage is um, deployed in the market. Um, it's a very popular program. And I just read an article about the expansion of Medicare Advantage in 2022 big topic for payers. And what they have to do in order to administer these programs is take a retrospective view of 
the last year or last two years in order to make strategic decisions about their business moving forward. But remember, with the delays in care, we also have a gap in data, rendering the algorithms that they use inadequate to predict utilization in 2021, this year, 2022, and beyond, really, um, that data is such an important piece of it. So again, one of the major consequences is that lack of data necessary for analytics, not only to help payers predict their future care requirements, but to also expand their interventions for disease management, um, which means identifying the right members that they should be reaching out to. Um, at Walters Clore, we do believe in expanding that access for all and, and support payers in their endeavors to use data to improve outcomes through better care management. And building on what you just said, along with the adverse effects of the pandemic, a major silver lining was the emergence of telemedicine. Can you speak on how telehealth has been leveraged by payer organizations to recoup some of the in-person care that was lost due to the pandemic? What are some opportunities for growth here? Yeah, for telehealth, it there's a lot of opportunity in telehealth that really has come about because of the pandemic. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's a great topic. Um, it is one of my favorites. You may have seen that I, I did write, I read a blog on it earlier this year. Um, I think it's important to realize that telehealth has been around for quite a while. Um, it has brought specialty providers to remote locations and to underserved populations. It's been one way of addressing the shortage of rural healthcare providers. Payers specifically have been providing telehealth services to members from their homes for routine problems like rashes, and they have nurse lines, as do providers, um, that are available to help patients navigate the system. But some things have changed with the, the uh, public health emergency of COVID-19. And really what's changed are the payment policies that have allowed an explosion in telehealth as a mode of delivery of healthcare. So let's start with some statistics to kind of drive that home. Um, it has been noted that there was a 1,000% increase in the use of telehealth in March of 2020, back when the lockdowns first started, a 4,000% increase in April 2020. And here's a really astounding statistic, 13,000% increase in telehealth visits for Medicare patients in a period of a month and a half in 2020. But with that increase, we need to realize that people have benefited greatly from it. In, in some areas more than others, behavioral health has been a significant area where we've seen a benefit of telehealth. Um, substance abuse programs can really benefit from telehealth as well. So we know that the utilization of telehealth is going down. We can see that in the claims data coming through. Um, but just yesterday, I read an article that we're leveling off at about 10 to 20% of overall hospital visits and sometimes a little bit higher than that, sometimes as high as 30 or 40. So there's still a lot of opportunity to make sure that we utilize telehealth in the right ways. And that, that takes data. Everything comes back to data. Um, and really it's payers need to be focusing on their payment policies as we move forward with telehealth, that they're processing claims efficiently and accurately. One of the big concerns is around fraud and abuse, right? Payers really need to not only make sure they're using data, reference data is what we call that, the claims data that 
that um, the data that comes in on claims. But they need to be able to understand, again, their member population. They need to really look at two things. How is the data from those visits being captured and used to facilitate better understanding the population that they serve? But also, how can data that they're receiving from other sources help them to address care equity across populations, help them to drive their uh, care management programs, including things like remote patient monitoring, um, and making sure, again, that they're addressing the right problems with the right members at the right time using the right modality. Um, lots of opportunity as Congress debates the merits, pros, and cons of remote services, but there are so many things that payers can be doing today to make sure they're formulating those payment policies configuring their claim systems, um, and making sure that they're targeting the, their most vulnerable populations with the ability for providers to use telehealth. I'm really excited to see where we go from here. Going into this year, especially with the introduction of COVID-19 vaccines, there was thought that utilization of healthcare services would rebound or even increase to make up for the pandemic. With the ramifications of the Delta variant potentially contributing to more delayed care, I know you already spoke on the significance of clinical data collection for payers, but how can they better address some potentially unmet needs of members? Great question, Matt. Um, first, I want to say, you know, Delta, it means change. And we are certainly experiencing that with Delta. So um, I think, again, you, you brought it up already. We need to go back to addressing those gaps in care whether they're from delayed care, other important social emotional reasons, it's all about data. In, in order to be able to address those gaps in care, payer organizations really need to lean on technology to identify and focus on providing optimal care to patients who haven't received adequate primary care and specialist care throughout the duration of the, the pandemic, including and maybe even focusing on those that are impacted by those social determinants of health. The technology should allow the payer to analyze their member population um, for gaps in care that need to be addressed. Um, they, the data needed for this type of analysis is going to come, and I think I mentioned this already, from a, many sources, including those telehealth platforms, but also patient reported data, clinical notes, um, lab results, right? Traditionally, payers have, have used claims data, which is highly structured. Um, it's codified to a standard. That's that reference data I mentioned. It's easy to analyze, but it really can't provide the deep clinical understanding of a member's condition in the way that clinical data can. I mentioned lab laboratory data is part of clinical data. So are radiology reports, remote patient monitoring devices, um, clinical notes. Right? And, and as an example, claims data can tell you that a lab test was performed for example, a GFR test for monitoring kidney function uh, was give, performed on a certain date. And you can say, great, uh, there's no gap in care there. They've tested for that range that needs to be done annually. But in order to know whether you need to provide an intervention, you need that clinical data to interpret whether it's in normal range or requires intervention from a specialist. More importantly, you need the results trended over time. Is it stable, increasing, decreasing? Um, what intervention might be needed based 
on that information, you might need to reach out to the patient and say, hey, I see that your GFR is increasing. You might want to talk to your provider about that. Payers and providers also have these conversations and payers need to know when to reach out to, to their providers to provide that care management information. So the opportunity here for payers is to understand how the use of terminologies beyond standard classification systems that they're used to seeing on claims, how those are leveraged in healthcare to drive better outcomes, and then apply those terminologies and some tactics around them to their analytics and population healthcare activities. Um, first, they have to ensure the clinical data they're receiving is codified. And if not, then they need to take action to normalize that data to derive value from it. Terminology management companies such as Health Language can really help them in that arena. As for the types of clinical data available, can you further explain the use of natural language processing? What benefits may this provide for payers managing member health? Sure, right. Continuing from the last um, question, the last conversation we just had, I was talking about data that is somewhat structured. It comes to you, you know it's a lab result. You need to figure out how to codify that and use it. Um, the other piece of, of clinical data that I talked about was clinical notes, radiology reports that are very, very heavy on narrative text. Um, and that narrative text contains about 80% of the deep clinical information, the understanding of a, a member's um, health status and, some, and especially those social determinants of health. So how do you extract value from that? Right now, what payers are doing um, they are employing or contracting with a multitude of clinicians, doctors, nurses, mid-level providers, coders that are scanning through reams and reams and reams of medical documentation, trying to pull out those nuggets um, that really will inform whether or not a patient is stable or needing intervention, if they need assistance with food insecurity or housing insecurity, and that's not sustainable. So where natural language processing comes in, we call it NLP, big buzzword in, in today's healthcare IT community, but it's a buzzword for the right reason, because what natural language processing can do is read through that text for the clinician and highlight certain areas that they would wanna uh, sit up and pay attention to. It's not going to replace the clinician, but it's going to augment their work and make it more efficient and hopefully more accurate. Now, it's important to note that uh, the narrative that you see in medical um, notes and, and radiology reports is anything but natural, and it's called natural language processing. So in order to be effective at pulling out that data from medical notes, you need to have a natural language processing technology that understands medical notes, needs to understand the sectioning that's involved in medical notes. A piece of information will have very different meaning if it's in a family history section of a note versus a history of present illness section of a note. So first of all, your natural language processing has to have that contextual understanding. But secondly, and even maybe more importantly, is understanding the medical jargon. Remember those synonyms, acronyms, and abbreviations I mentioned earlier? Because we have curated those over the course of 20 years with 
hundreds of clinicians and, and input from the industry, um, we have those synonyms, acronyms, and abbreviations that clinicians use in their dictation, in that narrative text. And so we can deploy those into a natural language processing um, environment to be able to really pull out that rich information and then codify it to those terminology standards I talked about so that it can be used in analytics, in risk adjustment, in population health initiatives, in closing gaps in care. It, there's so much, so much opportunity with na natural language processing. Um, and I would still say that it's it's a fairly nascent technology um, that is getting a lot of attention. I love what we're doing with it here at Health Language and you know, we are gaining traction in the market. So it'll be fun to be part of this technology and conversation going forward. You mentioned the necessity for technology to interpret natural language processing, but are there any other strategies to better integrate natural language processing into the healthcare industry? And are there any obstacles that may impede its use? Yeah, um, you know, I mentioned that it is a nascent technology and it's just just really taking off in the market. One of the things um, about any technology that you deploy into healthcare is the people using it, particularly those clinicians, are going to need to trust that technology. Um, I think the biggest barrier to any kind of adoption of natural language processing in healthcare is that trust. Um, and I don't think you're going to be surprised that I'm going to say that that trust can be developed through data. And in this case, I'm not talking about the data that's in the medical records, but I'm talking about the data that tracks the accuracy and effectiveness of that technology. It's, it's been proven over and over again that clinicians don't want to use a technology that they don't understand how it is deriving the answers. And when you talk about any kind of augmented intelligence, which natural langu language processing definitely fits under, machine learning usually plays into these applications. They, that can be somewhat of a black box for clinicians. Um, and they need to have an understanding as they should about how that technology is working and what the results of the technology really are. So we need to be doing um, some studies. We need to be working closely with those clinicians to make sure that we're developing the technology that meets their needs and that they can trust moving forward. What are some further strategies that should be considered by payers as this year comes to a close? Um, yeah, it's a great question again. Um, I think I would like to focus on, on engagement, um, payers engaging with their members, right? As this pandemic um, comes to a close and uh, their members are engaging again with the healthcare system, the payers need to engage as well. There's some key things that they can do that we've, we're seeing happening in the market. And uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Medicaid here in Colorado is engaging with what they used to call their beneficiaries um, through boards. And they've gathered various people from various communities to give input to um, Colorado Medicaid on ways to reach their uh, population in better ways. One of the simple changes that they made based on this board 
is changing from beneficiaries to members. Calling their beneficiaries members uh, make them feel more connected and valued. Another thing they did was change some of their mailings, the reach, the, the way that they reached out to their members um, to make sure that when the member received the mailing, they looked at the envelope and knew what the topic of it was. So in other words, if, if I got an envelope on a Friday and I'm afraid I might lose my benefits, I might not open that envelope. So they indicated on the outside of the envelope that this, this is not about your benefit, um, which allowed for those members to then open that envelope and receive the information that they needed about their care. Really important um, key insights come from those types of boards. So secondly, I'd like to bring up CVS, um, who's done some work on preventing preeclampsia in pregnancy. And you may not know that African-American women experience poor outcomes, they experience preeclampsia more frequently, and then they experience poor outcomes at a rate of two to three times higher than their white counterparts. This is regardless of factors like education, BMI, wealth, socioeconomic status, it's across the board. And CVS felt like they could pay, play an important part in filling the knowledge gap um, around preeclampsia. While, while women know it exists, they don't know um, what to do about it. They don't know what their risk factors might be or what to watch for. So what CVS did was use that clinical data that they're receiving to identify when women have those risk factors that might lead to that development of preeclampsia. And then to, to put out targeted educational materials that are culturally designed and impactful leading those most at risk for preeclampsia to have those important conversations with their providers and take the preventative actions like taking a low dose aspirin from the early part of their pregnancy um, in order to, to not develop preeclampsia and have those better outcomes. And lastly, do you have any other thoughts? You know, we've covered a lot, Matt, and I, my, my last thing that I'll leave you with is healthcare is slow to change. Members now often referred to as consumers of healthcare expect more of the healthcare system than they have in the past. They expect to interact with and leverage the healthcare ecosystem in the same way in which they interact with the financial institutions. And some of these things that we've seen, the opportunities created by the COVID-19 pandemic are allowing us to move things forward at a more rapid pace than we've seen in healthcare before. I encourage your listeners, I encourage the payer organizations out there to engage with this change and understand how to leverage that data in order to do so. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.